0: Listening to Tonebenders, the Sound Designers Podcast.
1: Let's do this. Welcome to Tone Benders. My name is Renee Coronado, and with me as always, it's Tim Muirhead. Hey Tim, how you doing?
2: I'm doing pretty good today. The sun is out and it's shining, and I actually had my lunch out on my front porch in the sunset. It was super cold, but at least there was sun, so I'm feeling pretty good today.
1: We had an ice storm and then we had a 70-degree day, and then we had a hail storm, and now it's 80 degrees again. Weather's nutty, but one place where weather is always nutty is in the deserts. We've got a desert recording roundtable together for us today. It's a really stacked lineup, so uh, tell us who we got.
2: Yeah, we've got a list of great guests today. First off, we have Bethan Kello, a sound artist and composer. She specializes in creating immersive sound worlds, drawing from environmental sound and field recordings. She had a debut album released on Touch Records that was listed in Rolling Stone's 20 Best Avon Albums of the Year. That's pretty cool. Welcome to the show, Bethan.
3: Thanks. Thanks for having me.
2: No problem. Thanks for joining us. Also, we have Zach Goheen. Zach was previously on Tone Benders for episode 111, talking about his amazing work on Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. He recently released an amazing, I think I used amazing twice in this intro, amazing sound library called Dune Drones featuring singing sand dunes recorded in the Death Valley National Park. Glad to have you back, Zach. Thanks for having me. And then we have uh, two of our returning champions, Thomas Rex Beverly. He's an avid nature recordist and he runs the highly regarded sound effects library that bears his name, From angry chipmunks to the Alaskan wilds, Thomas has recorded just about every natural setting North America has to offer. It's great to have you back, Thomas. Thanks for having me on. And finally, we have George Vlad. George is a globe-traveling recordist that has captured the sounds in jungles, volcanoes, cloud forests, and deserts. His recordings are available via his Mindful Audio sound effects label. Welcome to the show, George. Thank you very much. Good to be here. So you can head to tonebenderspodcast.com, find the episode page for this episode, and you find links on how you can uh, find all the libraries that these people have and their homepages and such. Both Thomas and George were previously on our podcast in episode 121, where they talked about their experiences and their lessons learned recording rain out in the field. We thought it would be good to invite them back and open it up to Zach and Bethan to talk about the near opposite recording conditions, capturing the sound of the dry, arid conditions in a desert. So let's get our bona fides out of the way. Let's talk about what experience you all have recording in deserts. Let's start with you, Thomas. For
0: me, a lot of it started, I grew up in the San Antonio area. And so I used to spend a lot of time going out into the deserts in West Texas. And there's some mountains out there that are about a mile up. And so you get a lot of conditions that are pretty similar to a lot of New Mexico and Utah. And you get these kind of really nice high desert mountains, a lot of time in Big Bend National Park out there. And so, yeah, a lot of that growing up. And then what really got me interested in recording in deserts was I did a a long distance bicycle ride across the country um, about five years ago. Where I rode a bicycle from San Diego, California to about El Paso, Texas, for about a thousand miles, and I was just Dang. carrying a I was just carrying a, <laughs> a, a a Zoom Zoom H6 with me at the time. But it was my first real kind of big field recording adventure, and I had all my stuff with me, and I was trying to do time lapse photography and just recording a bunch of firsts with things first kind of Don chorus, first time recording wind in the wires, and, and like doing all sorts of stuff. And yeah, just trying to ride a a bike 50 to 70 miles, 75 (laughs) miles a day or something and doing a lot of that. So I've always really loved big, open, sparse soundscapes. And then my parents retired out into West Texas and they, they lived in a little adobe house in the mountains out there. And so that became kind of the home base for a lot of my field recording adventures over the last seven or eight years ago and did a whole bunch of recording out there And then more recently have been exploring around Colorado and Utah um, in the last few months and doing some kind of extreme cold weather desert stuff as well as the summertime stuff. So that's
2: kind of an overview. Cool. Bethan, you've recorded in the Chilean desert. Is that true?
3: Yeah, I was sent in 2018 to the Atacama Desert to make some recordings for the New York Times Listen to the World issue of their Voyages magazine. Yeah, so I went there to make some recordings specifically of the sounds of the rocks sort of heating up and cooling down. They make this sort of clicking, cracking sound as they do that. Is quite incredible. And yeah, that was an amazing experience. Uh, other than that, I've recorded a lot in the Californian deserts, sort of the Colorado Desert, Mojave Desert, and recently the area of the Sonoran Desert that's sort of on the border between California and Arizona.
4: That's great. Cool. Zach, what desert recordings have you done? Um, I've just been doing desert recordings in a limited scope in the Southern California area. I think I got into it uh, about 2012. I did a big kind of hiking trip where I borrowed my mother's car and and, uh, drove all over the American West and uh, did a bunch of hiking in the um, Escalante region of Southern Utah, all around Utah, all around Idaho, did a lot of camping. But um, it's kind of the first time I I did a lot of like Slot Canyon hiking before and uh, it was an eye-opening experience and an ear-opening experience and just hearing the kind of, you know, close reflections and the, the barrenness, but also the real fragile ecosystems that are involved with those landscapes was really a first for me. You know, I grew up in the Midwest where it's just wind and trees. So after that, I ended up moving out to California a year later and took that opportunity to just Buy a more capable vehicle for <laughs> for going out into the desert, and uh, did that a lot more. So I go up to Death Valley a lot, where I had gone up to Death Valley a lot, and uh, Mojave Joshua Tree, Anza Borrego, some high deserts in uh, New Mexico. Yeah, just the just sticking around the L.A. Greater L.A. area, but going out to the deserts around here.
2: And then George, we've got uh, North America, South America covered. Let's uh, head over to where you've recorded. Tell us a bit about your desert recording.
5: Right. Deserts have been on my mind for a long time. Uh, ever since I went to uh, Africa the first time in 2016, I'd been dreaming about going to the Sahara and to the Namib and to the Kalahari. And I managed to go to um, to the Sahel in 2017 on my trip to Senegal. There's a bit of desert there on the border with Mauritania. And it's not 100% just sand So There's some vegetation as well. But... It could, ex- I could escape some of the more green parts of it and I'd be between the dunes and I'd still hear sound. So I was expecting it to be just barren there. I thought there would be no sound at all. There were the occasional birds and insects and obviously the wind and sand and everything. And I, I had hydrophones with me back then as well. And I did some sound recording with the hydrophones and in the, in the sand. And it was fascinating. It was another world for me and... Going back to why I started Mindful Audio many years ago, I just wanted to listen to these sounds that are often overlooked. And that was the definition of what what I wanted to do, basically, being in the desert, listening to these minute sounds. And last year, I managed to go to Namibia for 18 days, self-drive, just being out in the desert. I went to the Kalahari. Unfortunately, it rained for most of the part of, uh, of the trip in the Kalahari there, which doesn't really happen that often, as you'd expect. But in the Namib, I managed uh, to be out, to be off the grid, self-sustained for two or three days at a time without any connection to the outside world, and just surrounded by sand and by rocks and by the occasional wildlife. And it was fascinating. I I really loved it. And I look forward to going back to a desert, hopefully soon.
1: There's different kinds of deserts. You know, The the Namibian desert is obviously going to be very different from a West Texas desert, as we're all observing deserts, so I've done recordings out in West Texas as well, Thomas. One of my favorite recordings I ever made was out by the cotton fields out in West Texas because, you know, there's all these rows of dirt that they've plowed up for the cotton and it creates this perfect almost harmonica that the wind huh. blows over and just whistles on top of. coolest thing but that's just a very very different thing probably george from what you experienced out in, in namibia as well namibia
5: was definitely a mix of things there was a lot of uh, of sandy desert obviously sand dunes there's rocky desert and there was huge endless gravel fields also known as uh, desert pavement and it's basically an endless expanse of gravel and there is a lot of life happening in there there's a lot of very like primitive types of plants and mosses and lichens and there's also insects and then feeding on those there's blizzards and geckos and then there's birds and it's this very complex ecosystem that at first glance when you land there it seems like it's not there it just takes a while to get used to to let your mind and ears to get
1: accustomed to. Zach you were talking about ecosystems also that were new to you as you as you came into deserts like as you're observing those what were you finding
4: deserts are were were not part of how I grew up I grew up in um, a more uh, midwestern landscape and and moving out to the west coast I had a chance to just discover more time in the mountains and more time in the desert and understanding the relation between the two of them you drive up 395 along the eastern side of the Sierras and you look out your left side as you're going north and you see the tallest mountain in you know the contiguous 48 states on your left and on your right you see Death Valley which has the lowest elevation in the United States as well so they're very close to each other and they're because of each other you know it's the same thing you drive in Colorado and you see the Sangre de Cristo mountains. And you just, it's like, you've got this flat, flat desert landscape. And then out of nowhere, you've got these huge mountains that just get a plop in the middle of the landscape. And at the base of those mountains are sand dunes. And you get in the middle of those sand dunes and it's like, you're on a set from star Wars. It's, it's wild. It's a very crazy feeling to just be like, this is here. And the reason it's there is because all of the wind comes across those plains and picks up all of that sand. And as the wind starts to climb up the mountain, it just dumps the sand right there at the base of the mountain. So it's all interrelated and and interconnected. And, you know, I'm not a expert in biology or knowing animals and plant species by any means. I try to keep up and try to follow along as I'm out there and try to discover and look it up when I get back home. But you know just hearing birds i never heard before you know to this day the canyon wren is my favorite bird song. Oh, and yeah I, I had never heard a canyon wren before until like, i was out in
0: utah
4: yeah it's like such a signature sound and 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 now when i'm cutting sounds for films it's like the sound that means something you know it's not just a tweety tweety bird as a lot of editors will put a Tweety Bird in there. No, like the Canyon Wren means you're in the desert. It means something beautiful and something wonderful. It has a kind of song to it. So you just, you get yourself out there, you open your ears and you, you can hear the depth of field a lot more in the desert. There's less noise. There's less signal happening out there in general. So your ears can go deeper into the landscape and, and you can hear the, the critters on the ground, hundreds of yards away. So that's what's really special to me is what seems like a barren landscape really turns out to be very alive. You just have to pay attention and be patient and just listen for it. So
1: Bethan, when you went out there, one of your assignments was to go catch the rocks as they're changing position almost like, how do you, how do you approach that type of assignment? Like how do you even gain experience? Like listening to rocks?
3: Yeah, so we were there with uh, the photographer Thierry Cohen, who had actually suggested this location, which helped because he'd heard it before. But even even with that, we were out in the Kari Valley where he'd heard it before. And we were listening and listening and listening. And it's an incredibly quiet place. And there was not much sound at all for a long time. I have long recordings of the microphones placed up next to various rock faces with really very little happening. are certain areas where it's really loud. It's incredible when you you sort of contrast it with the rest of the environment being so quiet. It's a little bit like when you go to a concert in a hall and there's the the sort of silence, you know, when it goes dark and then, you (laughs) know, a sort of, Mm -hmm. you know, an acoustic musician takes the stage and the moment they start to play, there's this, this kind of, it just captures you, the sound out of the quiet and really this sound had the same effect in this kind of huge area of the valley that was just probably the quietest place i've ever heard in that the sound didn't just it didn't come back at you from the rocks like everything was absorbed i felt like you know when i spoke i felt like the ground was just absorbing my voice and it's probably to do with like because it's the salt in the rocks, and that's actually part of what causes this cracking sound. But yeah, it's just really incredible just to hear this.
0: Does it happen at a certain time of day, like in the morning and at night when the sun has just risen or set or something?
3: Yeah, it's due to the the changes in temperature. It was later in the morning than we expected, hmm. so it really did take time to actually heat up to the temperature, so it was more like 11 a.m., I think, that it got sort of more more prominent.
4: That sounds so cool. But
3: at sundown, when I recorded it, it was, like, actually just as the sun was setting. That was a little more complicated uh, in that location for the sunset because it, that also produced the wind. Uh. Um, so, you know, like, it is Really nice to hear that, but when you're you know trying to not get you know other sounds coming in then it you know it helps just to kind of have this pristine silence around it rather than the wind.
1: wind is a big issue in deserts, and it seems like once you get over a certain velocity, just a regular blimp isn't going to help you. You need some sort of uh, wind protection, which there's i mean like a some sort of shearing mechanism to stop wind in its entirety, and there's just less of that in the desert so As you all approach the wind situation, like how do you handle that in a desert setting?
4: I've done it personally with a few tricks that I've seen used elsewhere by other people and and kind of created my own, but it's basically just creating an external blimp around the microphones using your tripod. So you use your tripod like a teepee, wrap the tripod in something when I've done it before, I've gone out there unprepared in Death Valley. I was on this section of kind of salt flats, flat riverbed called the racetrack up there and where the wind just pulls and um, I didn't have anything with me except for clothing. So I just wrapped it with t-shirts or, or, or like a large sweatshirt. I think it's just a large t-shirt around there. But coming back, learned the lesson, did some research and ended up buying reticulated foam is that yes. how you say it? Reticulated yep. foam, which is a very porous foam. And, it's, you know, you get a one-inch roll of that, and that's been very successful in further trips up up to Death Valley where you're up in the canyons and the wind just is really pulling. you got to have some extra protection from that. So the reticulated foam wrapped around the tripod within the mics inside, inside their own blimp. So it's like a double layer there. I'd love to hear what other tricks there are, though, because it's always... A, Always oh, a beast. Yeah, I've done some stuff similar to what you said, Zach, with the
0: wrapping the whole blimp around <laughs> using the reticulated mm-hmm. foam. Um, sometimes I'll double or triple up on the blimp. I'll have different size furries. So I've wrapped two furries on top. Sometimes I'll put an extra smaller kind of cover inside the blimp. The most effective thing is usually just finding a natural windbreak of some sorts. I've been in a lot of deserts where you can find a fallen tree or an actual tree or just some kind of foliage that'll dampen it a little bit. If you're in sand dunes, just trying to get behind, not on the windward side of the dune and trying to get the the dune to be a windbreak for you. Sometimes you'll get lucky and you'll get a snowstorm in the desert. And I've, I've had some really good luck with taking an avalanche shovel with me for various reasons, but you can actually build a wind wall out of the snow and that works really well in the windward direction. And so you can you can build that up two or three feet high because generally I don't want to that with it depends on the kind of environment some kind of desert environments are really fragile and i wouldn't want to be building a big sand pile or something because it messes with the environment but the snow i'm fine with piling that up because it's going to melt anyway so i'll build a wall out of the snow that works really well and then if you want to take it to the next level you can actually sort of build a parabolic dish out of the snow and you can make a kind of six foot dish away from a sound source that you don't want so occasionally i'll have like a really point source thing Maybe it's the wind coming through this one saddle in a valley or a distant creek or something. And you can build this parabolic dish out of snow, and it does really, it really helps mitigate sound below about 2000 hertz when you build the dish away from the thing. So that doubles as a wind wall and can kind of focus the sound of the environment a little bit. Um, And then I do quite a bit of wind recording with the mic handheld because being able to. kind of move with the gusts of the wind I find is much better than trying to do it from a tripod a lot of the time. And you can use your body as a windbreak too. Yeah I use my body like I've recorded in 50 60 70 mile an hour winds and if you try to do that on a tripod it just shakes the tripod and then you get the vibration from the tripod and so if I'm going out in that I will use first I'll start with mics that do a little better in the wind like an Omni or something generally. Or I like my MKH 50 and 30 and MS in the wind because they they don't get as much of the low buffeting as the 80-40s that I like to use. And I also like MS in the wind because you can point it straight into the wind and that helps mitigate the gust hitting it. And then I, uh, yeah, I just like having it handheld because I can kind of dampen the wind gusts a little bit with my hand as I'm out in the wind. So I'm standing on the ridge top, and I'm kind of leaning into the wind. That's 50 or 60 miles an hour. And then I'm, <laughs> I, I have some sort of half baked wind wall or some kind of windbreak that I've made up. Maybe it's a trunk of a tree or it's just some rocks. Another fun thing is if you build a rock cairn, so you just take a whole bunch of the rocks from the environment, build yourself up a little cone of rocks A lot of times on desert trails, you'll have them already because they use them as trail markers and they have a really cool filtering effect. So you get the mics right behind the rock cairn and then the wind will come through that and it slows it down. And then it also kind of filters it in cool ways and you'll get these interesting kind of whistles and stuff. Um,
4: So it reminds me of like driving with a cup of coffee, like (laughs) 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 it's less likely to spill than if it's in the cup holder. So I like that idea of hand holding. I've never thought of that before.
0: Yeah, it works. It works a lot better in really high winds. If you're gonna, blimps are normally fine for ten or fifteen miles an hour, depending on the mics and stuff too. Yeah, I guess in deserts you're generally always going to have to have the the wind breaks. If you're in a forest or something, it's going to be canopy wind, and so the 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 wind's not going to hit the blimp as much. But yeah, George, did you? I know you have lots of lots of good tricks too.
5: Well, um, on my trip to Namibia, I didn't really try to affect the environment as much. One, as you said, it's some of these places uh, are very sensitive, very delicate. So if I went ahead and dug some holes or moved things around or did anything to affect it, it would have been uh, it wouldn't have been a good idea. Let's say so. I mostly looked for places that were sheltered from the wind. I would record at the bottom of a dune, not on the windward side, as you said, and I would put a pair of MKH eighty twenties in Rycote WS9s with high wind covers and with a wind jammer, with a ferry wind jammer. And that seemed to do the trick. I think I recorded up to 20 miles per hour, even a bit higher than that. And it was fine. It was not, There was no uh, problem with that. I was after the very delicate sound of, wind, of uh, sand spray, of sand just being gently blown by the wind and falling onto the, the crust of sand. And I succeeded in that. I managed to get some good recordings of that. Uh, But I had to be there for that because I couldn't leave the rigs out like that. And I also wanted to do unattended recording, which I managed to do with smaller rigs, with loms and with uh, bubble bees. But that I think that worked up up to maybe 10 miles per hour. Anything over that would just overload the capsules. So I would look for dead trees. Uh, There's a lot of dead Mopani trees in the Namib. And they might have been dead for 600 years at this point because there's sure. virtually no humidity, so they just try They don't succumb to moisture or to you know lichens or mosses or whatever. So one of the most interesting sounds I captured in Namibia was rain. Uh, again, a very freak opportunity because it never happens. But there was a very soft rain, maybe for five minutes, and since I had these very tiny microphones taped to branches of this mapani tree. The rain falling onto the branches, the branches were so taut and so dry that it sounded like a very poorly tuned uh, marimba or xylophone. So that was fascinating to hear, and I was I was having breakfast the day after listening to my recordings, and thought someone was playing music. What what is this? What what? How did I get this recording? Then hmm. obviously yeah. I realized it was the raindrops. Uh, but apart from that, whenever the wind picked up, there was I could not reuse really any of those recordings. It was just just buffeting. Yeah, and that's
0: is even, that the chromatic rain thing you shared? Yes. It's, okay. Yeah, that's, that's, the, that's the one really I,
4: cool. I, yeah, the sand um, spray recordings you have are. So incredible it's one of my like obsessions is get that sound it's such a difficult sound to get and yeah. yes
5: that wasn't easy no. um, and also the first time I tried to do it the wind picked up all of a sudden and I just walked back to the vehicle which was maybe ten minute walk as I got to the vehicle I noticed that everything was covered in sand so the the sand was actually moving oh. and ingesting my rigs huh. so I had to go back up and pick the rigs and uh, and take them back to the car because maybe if I had waited for half an hour for an hour I wouldn't have found them anymore.
1: Hmm. That's an interesting point as you're talking about especially in Namibia where there's there's no moisture the superfine sand can be very dangerous to gear what kind of precautions should people take as they go out into the desert to make some recordings for their gear? Uh, that's interesting I think for the the
5: gear it was fine I I, don't, I haven't had any issues with Regards to sand, because I use the Nakko Quest dry bag. I mean, dry bags for for everything, and I just left out the the microphones. And bright coat gear is usually very good, very sturdy, and protects from some amount of humidity and from sand as well. So I haven't had any issues. I had issues with eating a lot of sand, by uh,
4: <laughs> because it was impossible <laughs> to
5: avoid it. Obviously. <laughs> and then also getting it into my eyes. So I was going to go up this dune 45, which is probably the most famous dune in Namibia. And I, I was halfway up the dune and I couldn't see where I was going because as soon as I opened my eyes,
0: I would get like a handful you of sand in them. You need some like ski goggles, yeah. Even so,
5: I think sand just gets under them or, you know, it was, it was yeah. very difficult to do that. So I turned around and I got back because it was virtually impossible. So
0: did did you have all of your rigs prepackaged in yes. the dry dry bags before you went out and then set them? Yep, I always do that.
5: It's just easier... Whenever yeah, that's what I would happens. do too. I had six ready, so I just took one out, went out, you know, just uh, I think I had pressed record in the vehicle just so I didn't have to open it and close it back again. Right. And I went out there and I had the, the headphones dangling because I wanted to hear as well when I put the hydrophones in, I wanted to hear what depth I I needed to put the uh, hydrophones you in. You left the
0: headphones out of the yes. bag, then rolled yeah. it up, and you could still yeah. monitor. Okay. So, so I did
5: that, uh, yeah. and uh, yeah, that was pretty interesting because I was hearing... The sound that was picked up by the hydrophones, I was also hearing sound being blown over my head and my face and my the, the headphones and everything buffeting. And it was a cacophony of sounds there. But eventually yeah. I got some good sounds. I was, I'm happy with, uh, with what I managed to record there.
4: Yeah, sometimes it's hard to know if the sand spray you're hearing is on the mics or hitting the side of your <laughs> <Yeah>. headphones. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, housing. Yeah. yeah, it's hard yeah. to know.
1: Bethan, how did you approach wind and, and sand protection?
3: So with the wind, I actually really like recording the wind and I love the way that it kind of tells you about your environment and you begin to hear things, uh, you hear the rock formations around you and it can really draw attention to those things. I tend to look for natural windbreaks but actually things that are making it sound particularly interesting. So like in the Mojave Desert, there are lots of what are called tofoni, which are these hollows in the granite that have been formed through different speeds of erosion, basically with some water sort of getting into these areas and then it sort of erodes away at a different pace from the rest of the rock. And they, these hollows sound like each one sounds unique and has a different tonality to it. really interesting to listen to these things and to explore the environment through listening I mean they're really interesting to look at in some ways but once you actually start hearing all the different tones that they produce it's it's something you know I I really like to kind of basically learn about environments through listening to them and it it reveals all these different things that you don't necessarily notice if you're going to just look yeah so for protecting from the wind mostly kind of natural barriers and I you know I quite deliberately record the sound of the wind often it's not often that I'm going out deliberately to record something very specific that that experience in the Atacama Desert was uh, fairly unique in that regard for me so I enjoy it when the wind starts to make things around me sound I can sort of start exploring that. In terms of sand, I guess the sandiest place I've been is also the the Eureka jeans, recording that drone. Um, And it's a challenge. The first time I went, I lost three preamps temporarily um, because I I made the mistake of plugging and unplugging gear during it because I didn't know how to record it the first time I went. And so I had various different things. I had some hydrophones, some contact mics, Fortunately, I had my sound field microphone was left on channels 1 to 4 and channels 5 to 8 were my try-things-out experimentation channels. Um, And it was just discovering in that, like, okay, this this really doesn't work. Everything has to be cabled up before you go out. And she had a set of skiing glasses that have the side, like, protection. That really helped with the eye protection. Um, And... In terms of carrying the gear, it was like carrying as little as possible, making sure you're carrying water as well. That ended up being the sort of restriction of my time. And carrying the gear and water up the side of the dune is sort of tempting to not take as much, um, but that will always cut your recording session short. So it's just a case of balancing out what gear you're taking. So yeah, I, I definitely think kind of doing sort of reconnaissance first, trying things out each time so that everything is then prepared and cabled up when you go for a session to actually record.
1: You and George both brought hydrophones, which seems incredibly counterintuitive to me. <laughs> Bringing hydrophones into the desert. Like, what's the, what's the use case? How do you deploy those?
5: Uh, right, so when I went to this workshop with Chris Watson, I think it was 2014, in Norfolk, we went to the beach recorded seals for a while. We put our hydrophones into the sand and we let the the waves wash over it and I noticed there was there was good material there even when the waves when there was no seawater washing over the microphones because there's still movement in the sand grains and the hydrophones would pick that up. And that naturally I made the connection there between sand and hydrophones. And I had a pair of hydrophones in Senegal in 2017 and I didn't record as much as I would have liked. But still, that was a fascinating recording, and I still listen to it with great pleasure. So I have actually disconnected the word hydro from hydrophones. It's a contact microphone. It's made a bit differently, but it still picks up vibrations in mediums and in, in things and in surfaces. So I'll try it on anything. It's a lot of the hit and miss, but uh, sometimes you get really beautiful recordings.
2: Are you manipulating the sand yourself, or you're just relying on the wind to be manipulating the sand?
5: Well, there's a funny story, because I initially... When the wind was high, I just put the microphones in I gauged the, the depth and just let the wind play the sand. And eventually, well, I was looking for a singing sand dune as well. And I found one, but it wasn't windy enough, so or the sand wasn't moving enough, so I had to walk around the microphones to cause these sounds. And it sounded most like farting or groaning, mm-hmm. not necessarily like uh, singing, but it was still an interesting experience. And I, I do have some of those recordings, but I don't think they're as good as Zach's, you know, where the dune actually sings. So I think you can do both. There's nothing wrong with, with any approach, but it sounds more natural when you let the wind play it because it's more uh, organic.
3: I'm interested, Zach, actually. Something I noticed when I was recording the Eureka Dunes was that there was a kind of pattern to what happened where the wind picked up and it was pretty strong across the dunes, and then it died down and the dune started to drone. then the drone stopped with this little pitch at the end that went up slightly as it stopped. And then there was a sort of brief pause and then the wind would pick up. the wind was like completely dead during the time it was droning. And it seemed like there was this interaction between them. Now I only got two recordings being once when it was droning naturally and, and just have these two recordings, but in both of them, it's the exact same pattern. Uh, I'm interested if you encountered that or what was happening. I did not
4: notice. I did not notice that the beginning of that makes sense that the, the wind kind of basically what you're hearing is an avalanche from everything that I can gather. I mean, I'm no expert in this world. I just tried to look into it and tried to see, you know, what caused it and read some papers that theorize and do some research about it. And they're out there if you want to do your own research. But from what I noticed and from what I could see, it's basically just a slow avalanche of sand that creates a resonance frequency with the bedrock layer, possibly below. And it has to do with a lot of different factors of humidity and the silica size of the sand and the slope of the dune and the wind and all that. But yeah, it makes sense that the, the wind would instigate it. The wind kind of creates the beginning of the, the top pieces of sand and they start going and they build up and they they start knocking more pieces of sand and more and more and it creates an avalanche. But the fact that the, <laughs> that the wind is waiting for the avalanche to finish before picking up again, you're now into some kind of crunchy everything is connected hakuna matata kind of world that i i'm i'm into that too that's cool and I, you know no better place than the uh, the Mojave desert for that cuz that's definitely a good place for that kind of uh, that kind of thinking to live but it definitely feels like it is a call and response between the wind and the sand there is that where the the wind kind of calls out and the the sand responds I'm going to be honest and say that I cheated a little bit. I got a couple of the wind-created ones, and then as the sun was going down and the wind was going down, I helped it a little bit, where we gave it a little bit of a push from the top and then let it take on its own you know, avalanche. that thing that George was talking about too where you you know you're on sand that that has the the potential to sing when it kind of gives you that like as you're as you're walking on it and it's a really fun sound but in order for that sound to keep going into like a long drone it has to have that avalanche angle and all of the factors involved with it but i noticed it i went out to the Mojave kelso dunes with a friend of mine years ago and we were camping out there and he, he actually was the one who showed me the singing aspect of it. And it was after dark and we both just were like, did a running jump at the top of the dune and then dug our feet in and it just started going. And I was like, Oh my God, I'm going to come back here with Mike someday. And that's, and that's how I ended up going out to record them. But it is a very, very wild sound. and
2: Is it sonically different between the wind producing it and you uh, producing it? I could
4: not tell. I mean, there is a little bit of the front. You don't have the call and response that Bethan is speaking of, of the, you know, recording the wind instigating the beginning of it. But from the ones that I heard that were naturally or organically created versus the ones that I kind of instigated myself at the top of the dune, I did not hear a difference in the drone itself like that it was still a long slow in slow out drone and like Bethan is saying it has kind of a pitch ramp at the end as the resonance kind of picks up at the very at the very end of it but otherwise it was identical yeah it's a pretty fun fun thing to record but as far as gear like I had my hydrophones stuck in the sand and tripods stuck in the sand and the best thing to get is an air compressor or canned air when you get home and blow out all your cables and all of your tripod legs. Cause it's, it just gets everywhere and there's no getting around it. But like you guys said, just, you know, cabling things ahead of time and using dry bags was really helpful for sure.
3: Yeah. Something that I thought of afterwards um, was to use like something as a cap for the XLRs. So mm-hmm. like, I don't know if they exist, Actually, but I was thinking—I was thinking like um, a cheap adapter or something that's XLR that doesn't matter if that gets the sand in it. But yeah, just kind of putting something on to the end of the cable as soon as you take it out because it's just with the wind blowing and everything. It as soon as you detach them, it's trouble.
4: And they get down in the in the pins of the XLR, and it's like impossible mm-hmm. to clean out of there. Yeah, it sucks.
0: I'd approach the sand the same way I do with a lot of the other recording because one of the things I love about deserts is the the weather is so variable. You can get a snowstorm. I've been in West Texas, I've ridden my bike, and it's 95, and all of a sudden there's a hailstorm. The wind can pick up, and it can... It, very dynamic weather in a lot of these deserts, and so I would approach the sand protecting of the gear in the same way I would with water and a lot of things. It's just making sure that it's sealed up in dry bags and not replugging things and yeah, I have some of those little rubber XLR plugs. Another thing that George had taught me was Nutrick makes these X H G connectors that are these heavy duty XLR connectors that have a like a rubber seal to them so that when those are plugged together, like sand can't get into the connecting points. So those are great for rain or snow or also sand. It's kind of a lot of the, a lot of the stuff I would do for rain or snow is also applicable for sand. Especially if you're going to leave rigs out for a long time, it can get buried in the dune or, like George was saying, you can get a rainstorm. You also need to be very concerned about flash floods in deserts with the gear, because like yes. I've been, I've seen a dry creek bed with a three foot wall of water coming down it, where there, was, <laughs> where there was, there was no, it was totally dry, and then and then there's no rain in sight, and then there's a three foot wall of water coming down, and it was some rainstorm like ten miles away, and it's coming down. So you need to be very aware of water flow when you're leaving gear out with stuff like that in the deserts, because those flash floods are no joke when you're when you're trying to protect the gear but that's one of the more exciting things about recording in deserts is the water will do very interesting things if you're in slot canyons or creek beds or whether if you're in some kind of oasis kind of spot where there's little spring fed creeks and that brings all the wildlife around and so yeah in general i approach the protecting of the gear in the sand in the same way as rain or snow
1: are there precautions that people should take with regards to wildlife while they're out in the deserts?
0: Um, I think it depends on where you are. I mean, it seems like
1: there's some coyotes, that kind of thing out there. They're not going to mess with you.
0: It's not like bears. Some desert areas will have black bears in them. Bears will come and sniff and mess with your
4: gear, but I've had that happen, and then maybe they'll knock, they'll knock the mic over. I love those recordings. Yeah. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> um, I, I, use, I use Thomas's bear-sniffing-your-mics recordings a lot. They're great.
0: Yeah. I had a, I had a grizzly, like they don't come and just sniff it. They like check it out for a full 20 minutes and grunt. And, but usually they'll knock the stand over and scare themselves and run away. So bears will do that. Any deer, elk, mule deer kind of animals that may or may not be in a desert or transitional kind of environment will do that. One thing I do is I take like tent stakes and I stake down the tripod legs. So then if an animal comes and pushes it, they're less likely to knock it over. What about
1: like insects, like millipedes and scorpions and things like that?
4: Anybody that lives in the desert is usually in the habit of flipping your shoes over before you put them on, yeah. that kind of thing. It's like I feel
1: like that's something that's important to say, though, for people that aren't, that are going out to the desert for the first time.
4: Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's yeah. a.
0: The little stuff's going to get you, not the big things in the desert. It's the, yeah. yeah. It's the snakes and the scorpions
4: and, or Georgia's deserts, there's giant animals too, so. <laughs> Sorry. No, no, no. That's true. I haven't been out there, but it's between the little things, the insects and the, the bramble on the ground. I mean, everything's there just to stick in your feet and in your legs. And that's how it perpetuates its own life. You know, that's how the seeds get dispersed. That's how it keeps going and that's how it finds food. So that's, what's going to get you. It's not the bear coming down and getting you. but you know, besides just wearing the right clothing for the sun, you got to wear the right clothing for the, the ground cover, which is Uh, boots, you know, it's a good idea to wear boots. It's not as comfortable as wearing, you know, Burks or something more, uh, airy, but, um, rattlesnakes out there, a boot's not going to protect you from a rattlesnake, but it's going to help a little bit if that's the case. And, you know, long jeans help as well. But yeah, that's the, that's a trick that everybody that lives in the desert will tell you is, you know, when you wake up in the tent and you go to grab your boots, flip them over and shake them out before you put them on your feet because that's where the scorpions like to hang out at night. Or, so. or don't put your boots outside the tent either. That's why. Uh, even better. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so. speaking
5: of snakes, when I put out a, a rig in the, in the Namib, I set two microphones in a tree, in a pumpani tree. I had um, 2 8020s and I connected them. I just basically stuck the Gorilla Pods to the branches and left it out for 12 hours. And in the evening... When I went there, there was no, not really that much life. There was basically wind, and that was about it. In the morning, there was a bit of a dawn chorus, and there were some insects around. There was definitely barking geckos, so it sounded more lively. You say barking geckos? Is that what you said? Yes. Yeah. Well, they, they are bark. barking. They sound uh, more like clicky. Uh,
0: uh, 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 uh. Oh, that sounds
4: cool. Wow, that sounds But yeah, cool. it sounded
5: cool. It creates a very uh, unique atmosphere. And as I was walking, I was fascinated by this soundscape that had that was completely changed from what I had experienced uh, the day previous. And I hadn't had my coffee yet, and I was—I uh, I was dehydrated as well. I was just walking very slowly, and all of a sudden, I was just pulled back from my reverie by a, a violent hiss, and there was there was a, a horned adder which. Some sources say it's deadly. Other sources say there's not enough data. But it was squirming at the bottom of the tree that I was uh, that I had my my rigs in. So that was a bit of a conundrum because my choices were to leave the rig there because we had to leave in uh, in two hours or so.
4: Those are no longer your mics. Though, that snake was those mics. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, squatters, squatters' rights on the mics. Yeah. yeah. I yeah.
5: tried to reason with uh, the when I asked it uh, yeah. politely. There's no reaction. There's just squirming continuously there. And, you know, I'm respectful of wildlife, so I didn't want to stress it or anything. So I threw some uh, small bits of wood in the general area, you know, not hitting it. And obviously the snake was was aggravated and eventually went into a crack in the actual tree where I I was supposed (laughs) to go and pick up, you know, try to climb up and and pick up my rigs. I waited for half an hour, just looking around, waiting for things, and nothing happened. went there and very, very softly, very slowly, gently took the rigs down one by one, moving very you know just a bit at a time and nothing bad happened and uh, i was fine afterwards but that was a bit of you know that moment where from my reverie just analyzing the sounds just listening to everything not looking at anything to all my senses being like a thousand percent all of a sudden it was a huge contrast i could like the adrenaline was intense i would say yeah Oh. So, you know, don't do as I did. Don't be immersed in the soundscape. <laughs> Look around you if you're in the desert because there's lots of yeah, things like
4: that. But and to your point, too, a thing that I've taken to heart when hiking in slot canyons or in the desert is, let alone with gear with me, is like, I absolutely don't have headphones on. Don't shut yourself off from the world around you because that's how it tells you what to be careful for. You know, the rattle on a, on a rattlesnake is there because they don't want to bite you. They're trying to tell you to go away. So they're rattling to alert you when you're walking up on them. So I've had it happen a, a number of times with and without my dog, who's somewhat rattlesnake trained, hopefully. And so, you know, she can understand. And and I've, I've come across a couple of snakes while on the path. And, you know, you got to be connected and you have to be listening and not daydreaming and out. Absolutely not in headphones and not uh, not disconnected from the environment around you. I like, think
3: there's certain times, um, you know, when you do that and there's a sort of, there's a kind of unknown level to what, what you're listening to, um, where maybe you're fairly sure that there's nothing actually lethal around, you know, certainly if there's animals that, like the snake, for example, George, um, you know, I can completely understand that. But, you know, what you were describing of that kind of reverie and just... When it's a kind of reverie where you're really present in the environment. So you're you're really listening. And I actually often sit very close to my microphones when I'm recording quite deliberately to engage in that process of really silencing myself and really listening to the environment, particularly because there's not this sort of bed of sound like birds singing or or whatever. It's, it's very quiet. And that process of just settling yourself to the point where you're not moving, like at all, um, or very minimally, um, and really like you kind of feel the rock underneath you because that that is what's sort of securing you. That's what your your contact is with, and that's that's how you're staying steady and listening and having this experience of. Being kind of in in the environment in a very intense sort of listening way, that kind of allows you to really hear things differently.
0: How long does it take you to get into that mindset? I, it takes me a while. Is it fifteen minutes? Forty-five minutes? Is it, it for me? It's it's usually like over thirty minutes or so.
3: Yeah, um, I usually find about the first ten minutes of doing that are a sort of adjustment period or your mind's going different places and you're, I mean, like I really do like mean it when I say like, you are kind of holding on to whatever surface you're sitting on and you're getting to know that so that you, you don't move it, particularly if it's like a gravelly surface and you kind of like that touch sort of feeling that and, you know, understanding that whole thing is maybe 10 minutes of sort of getting into that and, and sort of, ending up in a position where you're no longer thinking about doing that.
4: Are you listening through your mics or are you just headphones off usually?
3: About 50-50, often it depends what I'm recording. So for example, if I'm recording the wind in a specific rock formation, if I'm recording something like that where monitoring that position of the mic is particularly important, I will use the headphones. About half the time, otherwise I will, choose to use the headphones because it's part of what I'm actually experiencing being a field recordist in the environment. It's part of why I'm there is listening through that microphone and that experience is is part of what I bring into my work that I do with these recordings but I do enjoy just really like listening to the unmediated sound and just being in the environment as well so it depends there's no kind of hard and fast rule for why I would do one or the other just Just how that that particular environment feels, really.
2: Thomas and Bethan, you were both mentioning about kind of settling in and being kind of uh, feeling at one with the environment. That's kind of a two-way street, though, right? It takes a bit of time because the environment has to settle in with you as well before all the animals or insects and stuff will kind of go back to their normal routines when you enter their space.
0: Yeah, it takes a long time. And that's one thing I like about the deserts, too, is if I'm in a forest in Alaska, like I can't sit there for an hour because a grizzly bear might come up on me and like, I can't sit there safely. Right. But in the desert, I got wide open space around me in most cases. And so no large wildlife's going to sneak up on you or something. So you can really sit and listen for a long period of time. And I really love doing that. And one of the things that I like to do occasionally, if I'm in a really beautiful spot, I've got something that's just captivated me as the wind off this ridge or some kind of slot canyons making this whistle or I found a really cool spot I like to actually sit and then actually record it and then my way of making myself really really present is that I sit and I record and then I make myself delete it after I record it because what? it's like because um, then it's <laughs> I was just there and I was just listening, right? And it's actually really, really hard to make yourself do that because <laughs> um, you got this amazing sound, but then it's like it was just about being there in that moment and then um, listening through the sound telescope of the mic. And um, I don't know if you've never done that, it's kind of fun, but sometimes I can't. You're hardcore. <laughs> sometimes Thomas. I can't. Like, a lot of the times <laughs> I don't, I don't can't know make if I can do that, man.
1: Um. <laughs> <laughs> it's like that one was too good.
0: Yeah. So it's, it's fun listening. I mean, when I first started recording, I couldn't sit still for five minutes or something, but now, especially in the winter in the desert, I really love sitting and listening. I was in Utah in January and it was, I'm sitting there in the tent and I have my mics strung out, out near the tent. It's like negative 10 degrees Fahrenheit. And I'm in this campsite and it's just completely dead still. And there's no wind and there's like absolutely no sound for multiple hours. And it's like, it's almost like I start hearing inside my body too. It's like, you just have this incredible hyper awareness that develops or like, is that like some new tinnitus that I'm hearing in my ear? Because it's like so insanely quiet. Or it's like, you just like start hearing your intestines moving or something, or you, or you hear something across the valley that's half a mile away. And I don't know, winters in the desert are especially neat because sometimes you'll get the bed of snow that'll be a little bit of an acoustic dampener on there as well and it'll make the sound just kind of sing through those spaces. So the cold plus the desert is especially interesting. And then you don't have to deal with all the snakes and bugs and stuff. Those are my favorite. Those are not (laughs) going to bother you. The snake's not going to bother you in the winter, so I don't have to worry about rattlesnakes when it's 10 degrees out. So I like the winters.
4: I always say that the recording is just an excuse, you know? It's an excuse to go out there. Yeah. Yeah. I'm taking my mics and I'm driving six hours and camping six nights. That's what I'm there for. I'm just taking my mics so I'd like give myself an excuse that I'm working, quote unquote, you know. And it just so happens that every once in a while you pull something out of it that is worth taking back and and you cut into a film later on down the road. But man, the the experience of sitting there and settling yourself and listening to the environment around you and not thinking about what you're going to make for dinner and not thinking about what you're going to, you know, post to social media or whatever, you just kind of, you meditate. And that's really why we, I think all of us do this because it's a way of disconnecting and the desert's the best place for disconnecting. There's just nothing like it. It's an intensely introspective landscape. I was going to say, though, one of the problems with sitting near your mics, not necessarily in the winter, but during the hotter months in the desert, I have found is, especially after hiking up a sand dune and putting mics in, not only do you have to catch your breath so you're not huffing and puffing all over your mics, but... Maybe TMI, but I I tend to get a lot of flies on my recordings if I'm near my Uh, legs. Uh, Oh. Yes. Because you're sweating and flies are going to be coming near you because you smell like something that they haven't smelled before. So, uh, yeah, (laughs) it's one of the things I learned the hard way is, like, I'm going to go stand over here so that I don't have a recording of flies um yeah
0: you got to, you got to get yourself along
4: <laughs> i haven't
0: started using it yet but the like running ethernet cable you can get like a 300 yeah. foot yeah. run of that and it's quite a bit lighter i haven't started doing it i know some people that have but it's a lot less weightless too yeah but i i don't know if that's sand friendly because i those connectors i don't think are probably going to be as good in the sand but maybe maybe not you could probably wrap them with electrical tape but that could get you further from the mic so. so for
1: people that aren't familiar with what Thomas is talking about, they make these little uh, Cat5 to XLR four-channel adapters that they're unpowered. It's just a straight copper wire connection. But you can run Cat5 like hundreds of feet, and you can just have these little tails on either side. And it's just it's perfect. It'll pass fan and power in the whole thing. So it's, it's a really nice way to move very far away from your microphones while still being physically connected.
0: Yeah, it just you know. weighs a lot less. If you've already got 75 pounds of stuff in your backpack, like uh, when I'm backpacking, I can't haul that many cables because I yeah. just I can't carry any more stuff or I already have too many things strapped to the backpack. So I generally am pretty minimalist on the cables if I'm backpacking. So it's the same kind of thing if you're going to hike up a thousand foot dune, the weight matters a lot. So, yeah.
1: So, Beth, and I have to tell you that before we jumped on here, I, I jumped on your website and I was playing some of your music back. And my wife was like, man, that sounds like the soundtrack to the greatest movie ever. <laughs> it was like,
4: wow. What a compliment. It
1: was, well, I was sitting there playing it and I had it in the cans and I was like, come here, listen to this. <laughs> Which, she was like, wow. Um, it was really gorgeous stuff. You know, a lot of what we're doing when we go out and record wind and, and soundscapes in the desert is so that we can put them in film and TV and, and video games and to use them in musical compositions as well. It's it's a very direct, emotional, intense connection to what the desert is. And it was really it was really beautiful to check out. And I, I was just listening to it because I knew we were going to talk to you. And I'm very happy that it came across my front door there because it was very cool. So I wanted to say that to you in person. So I appreciated Thanks.
3: that. Yeah. Yeah, I find that a lot of what I'm doing is is sort of thinking about these spaces that are sort of articulated by sound and how do they make us feel? You know, how do I feel here? Um, You know, sound is such a huge contributor to that, to our emotional response to different landscapes. And, you know, the sort of musical exploration of that, I guess, with the recordings afterwards, it's always something that that kind of connection between musical experience and experience of spaces and landscapes is something that I've always been really interested in.
1: Yeah, highly recommended. People should check out the work that everyone here is putting out because this is a, it's an impressive group of people here talking about this. And I really, really appreciate everyone coming on and sharing your thoughts and, and insights and wisdom. Deserts are extremely romantic places much more so than they probably get credit for and they're just fascinating so i appreciate everyone's time coming on
2: for sure thank you everybody thank you thank you
1: thank you it's been a pleasure thank you
0: tone benders is produced by timothy Muirhead, renee coronado and Teresa morrow theme music is by mark straight send your emails to info at tonebenderspodcast.com follow us on twitter via at the tonebenders and join tonebenders podcast on facebook support this podcast you can use our links when you shop with amazon or bnh or leave us a tip just go to tonebenderspodcast.com and click the support button thanks for listening